Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour in Ukraine. Here's what's coming up. The cost of defending democracy is bloody, as Ukraine also remembers the lives lost in the Maidan democracy protests 10 years ago. Then... We wouldn't lose Avdiivka if we had received all the artillery ammunition that we needed to defend it. Ukraine's foreign minister tells me his forces lack weapons and ammunition, and he asks the West, do you actually still believe in yourself? Our conversation here in Kyiv. Plus... The Zone of Interest, the Oscar-nominated film about life next door to Auschwitz. I speak to director Jonathan Glazer about its important relevance today. Also ahead, Israel's self-destruction, Netanyahu, the Palestinians, and the price of neglect. Walter Isaacson speaks to Aluf Ben, editor-in-chief of Haaretz. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in Kyiv. Today, Ukraine remembers lives lost a decade ago when police and government forces opened fire on protesters at Maidan Square, not far from where I am now. They were demonstrating against then-President Yanukovych's decision to turn away from the European Union and towards Moscow under Putin's pressure. More than 100 people died, a group known here as the Heavenly Hundred. President Zelensky says they are being honored on the battlefield. Today, Ukraine honors the memory of their feet, the memory of how Ukrainians can fight for their freedom, in the squares, on the barricades, and today at the front. The memory that in the most difficult moments of history, we never give up. Ten years on, that struggle against Russia's grip is proving more urgent and more costly, more costly for Ukraine than ever before. It has lost the frontline town of Avdivka, which it had held for a decade since Russia's initial 2014 invasion. And from there, harrowing stories are now emerging of injured Ukrainian soldiers who've been left behind. As we found, the country is reeling from the lack of ammunition, weapons, and the loss of so many sons and daughters struggling to hold Russia at bay. At first, it looks beautiful. All the colors, the sheer density flying in the wind, so much Ukrainian yellow and blue. But when you realize that each flies above the body of a beloved, the pain is palpable. A mother cries for her son. He came from Poland, from abroad, says Lyubov. He went to liberate our Ukraine. He said, Mom, I'm going to defend you. A woman seems to be talking to her fallen loved one. And this widow, Natalia, moves in for a kiss. Her husband, who had volunteered for the Eastern Front, was killed just shy of his 30th birthday five months ago, when shrapnel hit his head, leaving her and her small children alone. I'm proud of my husband because his sacrifice is worth a lot, says Natalia. I believe that it's the duty of every man to defend his homeland. Having three children, he could have not gone, but understood that he was going to defend us. 
The Charkiv Cemetery in the western city of Lviv is like cemeteries all over Ukraine today. Two years ago, this was a grass field. Today, it's a field of flags and the graves of those who've fallen defending this country. And on this two-year anniversary, families are asking whether Ukraine can continue leaving it up to their volunteers or whether there needs to be a call-up to mobilize for the front. Natalia agrees. Yes, definitely, she says, because if we don't defend ourselves, what kind of fate awaits us next? And if we don't defend our lands, Russia will be here soon. In the center of Lviv, there is a small recruitment office for the Army's 3rd Assault Brigade, just through this courtyard. Sergeant Pavlo Dokin is in charge, and he shows us in. So, Pavlo, this is the recruitment office, the recruitment center, yeah? It is exhausting, not only physically, but also for morale. Soldiers need to have normal rotations, Pavlo tells me, so that they can rest from all of that and start working with renewed vigor. The office is open all week, sometimes a few show up, sometimes none. While we were there, just one. Why do you want to be in the military? Someone needs to defend our Ukraine, says Volodymyr, a 43-year-old builder. And that's the point. Starting a third year of full-scale war against the Russian invasion, they are heavily outmanned, and vital weapons and ammunition for their fight are tangled up in Washington's political gridlock under former President Donald Trump's direction. Speaking to world leaders in Munich this past weekend, President Zelensky said he'd invite him to see the war with his own eyes. If Trump, Mr. Trump, if he will come, I, I'm ready even to go with him to the front line. Back at the 3rd Assault Brigade, this poster says, rush to the decisive battle. And they did that this weekend, just as the small town of Avdivka in the east was falling, to help withdraw forces before they could be encircled by the Russians. At least then they could live to fight another day. President Zelensky told me for every Ukrainian killed in that battle, there were seven Russian deaths. I'm telling you, frankly, we don't have long-range weapons. Russia has it, and we have too little of that. That's true. That's why our main weapon today is our soldiers, our people. Back at the cemetery in Lviv, the people, the bereaved, say the nation needs a new call-up if it can properly arm them. I would say they should, says Lyubov, but only if they had weapons. The guys have no weapons, they have nothing to fight with. Believe me, my child used to buy his own uniform with his own money. And here, more ground is already being prepared. The fight for freedom and democracy will be bloody, hard and long. Well, some are stepping up even more to help in the fight. Canada says it will up its donations with 800 drones to Kyiv, while Sweden has announced its largest support package so far, a record 683 million U.S. dollars. Earlier, I spoke to Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba. As this war approaches its third year, an anxiety about the Allies' staying power is running high.
Foreign Minister, welcome back to our program. It's good to see you back in Kiev. Because we met a couple of days ago at the Munich Security Conference. And there, you heard your president. I interviewed him on stage. He gave a speech. And he particularly first invited President Trump to come and see the front line for himself, and then urged the Congress, urged the United States primarily to deliver what it's, what it's promised. Do you think that's going to happen? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it is going to happen because the United States of America, irris irris irrespective of their political affiliations, understand that what is at stake in Ukraine goes far beyond Ukraine and is of national interest, national security interest to the United States. We regret that it's taking so much, so much time. Uh, we suffer from uh, enormously insufficient supply of artillery ammunition and other types of weapons. And therefore, all we can do is just to urge to make things happen faster to save lives here in Ukraine and uh, to allow us to keep our territory under control and liberate those territories which were occupied by the Russians. So both President Biden and you yourself and others have said that essentially the slow rolling of aid is showing up on the front line and you have said we are paying with our lives for the failure or the slowness of certainly Europe to ramp up its defense industries. Yes, again, yes. The problem, and our European partners recognize that, is that it took them too much time to admit that they have to invest long-term into production of weapons. I mean, let's be frank, the, the weapon production is not the most popular area for investment in Europe. Europe has, uh, is used to living in peace. But it's because your countries allowed the peace dividend when the fall of the Soviet Union happened? W without a single drop of blood. But uh, now there is a war and the Europeans have to accept the fact that the era of peace in Europe is over. Whether someone likes it or not, it's over. And you have to invest long term in the production of weapons. And I'm making the point when I speak to my European colleagues that every piece of weapon, every round of ammunition produced in Europe should serve the purpose of defending Europe. And the place where Europe is being defended is Ukraine. I want to read something from my panel on stage, and I know you heard it all. Senator Pete Ricketts, Nebraska Republican, he actually at least showed up. Senator Lindsey Graham did not show up. He was actually meant to be on that panel, and he's a senior in you know, in, in the security establishment. Um, I'm going to play this, what, what Pete Ricketts said. It takes time to bring democracies along. And the same thing is going to happen in the United States. We will get there with regard to making the investments in our defense industrial base, supply the weapons to Ukraine. But it's going to take time to get there. There may be different paths to get there. Uh, I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's quote, Americans will do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities. That's what he said. What and how long can Ukraine hold out for America to do the right thing? Well, we will not fall, whatever happens. But if we want to save lives, if we want to decrease the cost of repelling the Russian aggression, then the assistance has to come literally tomorrow. People have to understand one simple thing. Adopting the law is important, but delivering stuff to the front line takes time. And while this decision is still pending, and then add logistics, all of this time our soldiers will be sacrificing their lives at the front line, holding up against uh, an overwhelming force of Russia.
they, they are making miracles and they must be credited for that. But the reason they have to sacrifice themselves and die is because someone is still debating a decision. And I respect domestic politics, we do not interfere into it, but I just want everyone to remember that every day of debate in one place means another death, a death in another place. Or the fall of a town or a city. While we were talking in Munich, Avdivkia fell. Some hundreds of Ukrainians who were wounded were unable to be evacuated. And as you know, as your commander said, the Russians were advancing over the you know corpses that, that were in their way. And now we hear and we see pressure being put on the Kharkiv region. Can you hold out? You say you will not fall, but, but a big town has fallen, or a medium-sized town, and they're putting pressure on the second biggest city in Ukraine right now. We wouldn't lose Avdiivka if we had received all the artillery ammunition that we needed to defend it. That is my answer to your question. Simple as that. I don't think it requires any additional comments. There is a war. This war will continue. Russia does not intend to pause. Russia does not intend to withdraw. They will undertake other offensive operations. And they always act in a very simple, um, I would say even salami uh, tactics. They slice one town or one village, and then they focus all of their resources on another one. So once Avdivka is uh, under their control, they will undoubtedly choose another town and, or city and begin to storm it with ruthless, uh, in a ruthlessly systematic way. The only good news here is that they are unable, and we should not overestimate the might of Russia, they are unable to, um, to maintain uh, large-scale operations simultaneously along the front line. They don't have resources for that. But they switch on one city, one town after another, and uh, you know f the fall the fall of one city means that someone else someone else's time has come so here's the thing your president said in munich that uh, the battle for avdivya which was the biggest defeat since bakhmut which also was a big psychological blow to your side and a psychological you know reinforcement to their side he said for every one ukrainian killed seven russians were killed okay let's just say that is the fact but they are pumping out so much more ammunition. Their defense industry is up and running in a way that NATO never imagined. They're pumping out tanks, hundreds of them, you know, hundreds of thousands of ammunition rounds. They're probably going to call up another several hundred thousand people to fight this war. Are you really sure that they're not winning and that they might not in the next year? Well, they're not winning because you and I are talking. You know, we, are, we, we, we were not supposed to talk here because the position of Ukraine's foreign minister would not exist by now. Russia wanted to destroy Ukraine in three days. We're still talking, and Russia is far away from taking over the whole country. But people are telling us that it's almost today like it was in the bad days, the beginning of the war, when nobody expected you to be able to stand. Yeah, but the, the, this is exactly the point. No one... Again, you know, you did not, not you personally, but uh, some people in the, in, in the West did not expect Ukraine to actually survive the Russian attack. Today they do not uh, expect that Ukraine will stand against Russia. I don't have a question to, to, to Ukrainians, actually. I have a, a question to the West. Do you actually believe in yourself? Because if, if you're not able to win and to help us win in this war, who else are you able to help?
it's very simple. What is, again, this is what is happening here. It's not just uh, between Russia, a mess between Russia and Ukraine. The whole global order is being tested. And uh, if Europe, America, Canada, other partners are not able to match the production of artillery ammunition, then someone else is watching you guys. And someone else understands that you will not be able to oppose him in different places, parts of the world. When we spoke last summer on this very balcony, you were telling me that there is going to be a ramp up in Ukraine's defense industry. Is that happening? It did happen. We, we ramped up our production enormously. We started to produce ammunition that we had not been producing for years. Uh, we will produce more than one million drones in 2024. We did our best, but uh, and we will keep ramping up and beefing up our defense industry. This is why we are working so much on co-production with other countries. But there is not a single country in the world that can single-handedly satisfy the needs of the war of this scale. And this is why we are calling on all our partners, call it NATO+, Plus. Um, all our partners should create kind of a common collaborative space for defense industries, for them to collectively oppose the aggression that can, 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 can take place in any part of the world. To that end, you know, clearly President Zelensky wants to bring the Global South on side. They seem to be more sympathetic or more receptive to Russia and to Russia's story. And I just wondered whether, whether you are making any diplomatic inroads into bringing more of the UN community you know, to understand what this is, a war of aggression and invasion. Absolutely. This is our big focus. And right after uh, talking uh, to you, I will be having a phone call with a foreign minister of one Latin American country. And every week we're talking to Latin America, Asia, Africa, engaging them, explaining them. But uh, Russia also has its uh, foot in, in these regions. And, uh, of course, this is a different type of a diplomatic war that is uh, being fought. You spoke with the Chinese, your counterpart, at Munich, I think, and Wang Yi promised that China, quote, will not add fuel to the fire, take advantage of opportunities to reap gains, or sell lethal weapons in conflict zones uh, or, or, to, or to parties. Are you convinced that they're not putting their thumb on the, thing, on the scales for Russia? Uh, not in terms of uh, weapons supply. We don't have any evidence that would suggest that China is supplying mm -hmm. Russia with, uh, with any types of uh, weapons, but North Korea does. And uh, North Korea and China has leverage on North Korea, so you know, there are ways to, to operate in this, in, in this world. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can confirm what uh, Minister Wang Yi told, told uh, what, you just, uh, what you just quoted. And we had a very meaningful conversation with him, focusing actually exactly on the peace effort, on how to make Russia act in good faith when it comes to ending the war in Ukraine. What did they think about the death of Navalny? You say act in good faith. A lot of people have said, and you told me this when, uh, when Prigozhin was killed. You said, how can we trust Russia when they don't even keep to their promise? You, you remembered that Putin Absolutely. had promised Prigozhin safe passage. Well, we the death of Alexei Navalny was not uh, an issue in my conversation with the Chinese counterpart. But uh, I think uh, this murder stripped President Putin of the title president. I mean, you cannot consider him as a legitimate ruler 
if he does not stick to his word and his solution and his most conventional way of doing things is to promise something and then kill a person he gave a promise to in order to waive himself of this responsibility. This is not a person you can truthfully negotiate with, so it is needed to find the way how to force or motivate him to act in good faith, and this was the purpose of our conversation. I don't know whether you've seen the Washington Post story. They've found documents uh, in which there is evidence, they say, that the Russians, Putin and, and the establishment there, are using all sorts of known tactics, you know, the troll farms and other issues, to sow disunity in this country, disunity between President Zelensky and other leaders here, uh, to try to convince the people of Ukraine that, you know, Zelensky is not popular or, or whatever, that, that there should be elections where there haven't been elections. Are you aware of this? I don't need to read a Washington Post article to learn something that I'm living in the middle of. I mean, we've been in this since, our, since, since 1991 when we gained independence. Russia has always systemically tried to sow divisions and undermine unity in Ukraine because, you know, divide and rule was, is, is their strategy. But yes, you're absolutely right. What they're now trying to, to do is to uh, shatter the unity in the society, to sow divisions between political, political class and uh, public opinion, to put in question the legitimacy of the president. I mean, the country that knows no democracy puts in question the legitimacy of a, of a democratically elected president. This is what they do, but they, they do, do it not only in Ukraine, but in other places as well. But here, two years on, in the midst of a terrible war, a grinding war with so many casualties on the Eastern Front, do people remain unified? Uh, I think so, but people are tired. That's also, and the more tired you get, the, uh, the more emotional you become. So this is why Russia feels that this is the time to, uh, to move in and try to play with it. But as long as we're united, we have a chance uh, to win. There are others who've asked about elections, for instance. There are meant to be elections, but there's martial law, so there won't be elections. What does that say about Ukraine's democracy and its commitment to democracy? Well, first, we wouldn't survive the Russian attack if we were not a democracy. And we will not win in this war if we do not remain a democracy. And uh, I, I realize that people love to make tests in Ukraine to test their, their, their ideas. If they can quote a country that was successful in holding elections, national elections, during the war of this scale and intensity, I will be happy to sit down and, and learn how a list of problems were solved in order to make these elections happen. This is not an issue of willing or not willing to hold elections. This is an issue of finding answers to very specific questions. How do you ensure the security of voters who will go to the uh, uh, voting station? Every voting station is a target. People will be simply afraid to go and, and cast their votes. How do you ensure the right of a soldier to both run in elections or to vote uh, while he is in the trenches on the front line? As foreign minister, I have to make sure that millions of Ukrainians abroad will have the right to exercise their voice, uh, their, their vote. So there are tons of issues, but look around. This is a country that fights because it is a democracy. Otherwise, we would have already lost. Foreign Minister Kuleba, thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In wartime, of course, it would always be easier to look away from the horror and not to face the ugly truth. That kind of complicity is the subject of The Zone of Interest, a new film depicting the seemingly idyllic life of the Hoss family in their picture-perfect house and garden. But the patriarch, Rudolf Hoss, is the commandant of Auschwitz, and on the other side of their garden wall, Jews are being sent to the gas chambers. Here's a clip from the trailer. Now, the film has been nominated for five Oscars and it won three BAFTAs, the British Academy Awards, this weekend. Director Jonathan Glazer joins me now from London. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, welcome to the program and congratulations, not just for the awards, but for the incredible amount of interest and conversation that Zone of Interest has sparked. Did you think that it would be so relevant today when you thought about making it all those years ago? Hello, Christian. Thank you for having me on, on your show. Um, I think, tragically, it's always relevant. Um, I think it's a continuum. So um, uh, it, it didn't feel like I was ever going to approach the subject as a sort of museum piece, you know, something that happened 80 years ago that we could uh, have a safe distance from um, and look at as if it was sort of in aspect, but rather make it and think of it as something ongoing in more in the more in the present tense so um obviously um the the uh the um uh, uh the events of um you know the the film predates current events obviously or rather the themes of the film predate current events by by a number of years 
when uh, accepting the Oscar, the, your producer, uh, James Wilson, he said this, and I'm just going to read it out. Those walls aren't new from before or during or since the Holocaust. And it seems stark right now that we should care about innocent people being killed in Gaza or Yemen in the same way to think about innocent people killed in Mariupol or in Israel. So I'm talking to you from Ukraine. And of course, Mariupol is where the initial uh, bombardment, siege and destruction by the Russians really took place. But, but what was Wilson trying to say, that sometimes we have empathy with one and not the other? Yes, I think he's talking about um, that it, it, it seems so clear that we care for the safety of some groups of um, people from violence, oppression and injustice, um, our own tribe mostly, more than other people who are, who are not in our tribe. Um, and I think as soon as we think about... Um, as soon as we think these, the, the, as soon as we consider these ideas um, from from a tribal perspective, we are inevitably othering and dehumanising um, people who aren't in our tribe. So, I think he was talking partly about that. Let's get back to the film because it is extraordinary in the way you chose to depict the Holocaust, essentially, without showing the victims, but showing the commandant and his family and showing the comforts that at least the wife and children uh, were used to and really liked and ignored what was happening just over their wall. So I'm going to play this clip. Ah, ja, das ja. war auch die, die immer diese Bücherabende veranstaltet ja, hat. Ja, 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 ja. Das ist der Teufel, was die da gemacht haben. Naja, bolschewistisches Zeug. Jüdisches Zeug. Ja. Beim Straßenverkauf ihre Sachen, da wurden mir ihre schönen Vorhänge genau vor der Nase weggeschnappt. Von der Nachbarin von gegenüber. Ja. Ich habe diese Vorhänge geliebt. Diese Blumen, das ist ja wunderschön. Ja, die Azaleen da. So, Jonathan, it is chilling the, the way you've depicted that. Talk to us about it. What were you saying by, by doing the adjacent to the camp? Um, you know, obviously, there have been many films made about the Holocaust, and, um, and many of them, uh, most of them, in fact, um, would, um, uh, you know, we would be with the prisoners, we'd be with the incarcerated, and... Uh, and I thought what was a very interesting starting point and perspective was the was there was the point of view of the perpetrator and the sort of um, grotesque, uh, uh, stark um, uh, um, um, situation here is that the Hoss house, Rudolf Hoss, lived with his family. I mean, what you see in the film is really a direct simulation of how they did actually live, where their garden abuts the death camps that he was in charge of. So on one side, you have this this you know, cornucopia, um, and on the other side, of course, you have uh, hell. Um, and um, that sort of wall for me is a sort of almost a manifestation of, of, of how we com compartmentalize the suffering of others in order to, um, you know, and normalize the suffering of others some, to some extent in order to sort of protect and preserve our own comfort and, and security. Um, and they did live like that, and they were... You know, as Primo Levi said, you know, Rudolf Hoss wasn't made of uh, different clay from any other member of the bourgeoisie in any other country. Um, it's really looking at them as Mr. and Mrs. Smith from number 26. You know, there was nothing exceptional or dynamic or, 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 or you know, 
about them. They, they were they were grotesquely familiar. And and I think what we were trying to do with the film was to find a space or create create a space where the viewer could actually project themselves onto them and see how familiar how, how familiar they are. Um, um, rather, and not have the, the comfort and benefit of being able to kind of empathise with the victim, rather to the discomfort of seeing ourselves in, in the perpetrators. And getting that atmosphere across, I mean, it's really incredibly effective the way you've done it, because you've done it with, you, you said that there are almost two films. One is the visual and the other is the sound. Talk to me mm. about the sound and how you recreated what was going on over that wall through sound? Um, I knew right from the off that I didn't want to reenact these atrocities using actors and extras. I, I, I feel that that imagery is something that we all know and it's sort of seared into our consciousness as it is. And sound, um, uh, of course, is, in, is interpretive and we are able to see those pictures in our mind's eye because we hear those sounds. So. And again, because the film is sort of defiantly made from the uh, garden side of that wall, from the host side of the wall, um, I, 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 I kind of wanted, I didn't want to ever go over there. I wanted to be, but nonetheless, I wanted the, the, the horrors to be sort of bearing down on this uh, bucolic uh, uh, atmosphere that they created for themselves regardless. So it's sort of, um, it's in other words, it's sort of out of sight, but never out of mind. And the sound was a, um, a year-long uh, um, um, uh, workload really of gathering field recordings and going out and shooting field recordings sonically in order to be able to then construct this sort of sonic landscape which depicts uh, the horrors and the sort of perpetual atrocities going on over the other side of the wall. Um, it's, it's, I think the film, Christian, is, is, it's not saying look at what they did, it's, it's saying look at what we do. Yeah, I'm so interested because you've said that twice now, several times in this interview, essentially saying, as you as you pointed out, that it's not necessarily just a monster, but it's the potential for everybody to be a monster. Precisely. I guess yeah, the, they, the, the question yeah. then is, yeah, I mean, you talk about Hannah Arendt's banality of evil, but then, you know, if we all have that capability, what gives you hope that we will all not act like that? And there are a few really amazing moments of hope that you visualize in a sort of sometimes a dream sequence. Talk to me about that. Well, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I believe, you know, um, you know, we're not just that as human beings. It's, it's obviously the, the, the what, what I would hope that we would be able as a species to evolve out of that, uh, out of our capacity for violence in, in thought and in, in, in action. And uh, what a, what a, and, and uh, what the potential we would have as a species if we could evolve out of that. So I certainly haven't given up hope. Um, and I do think that um, um, it was important to include um, hope in the film or, or the or the um or something holy and the girl that you refer to is a local polish girl um based on a conversation i had with a 90 year old woman who was that girl at the time who lived two kilometers from from the camps and took it upon herself to leave food for prisoners at night where and where she could or where and when she could um and it felt very important to include light it felt very important to include the, the other side of, of human nature and what we are, what we can do, you know, I mean, it's trying to sort of ask ourselves as a film to have a genuine human response, you know, why one life can be considered more valuable than, than another. Um, 
you know, human pain is pain and, and loss is loss. And at the most basic, uh, you know, the needs and desires of, uh, of us are the same. Um, you know, violence and oppression, as we know, produces more violence and oppression, not less. Yeah. I'm just staggered and struck by the good fortune you had to speak to that 90-year-old woman who was then a girl, who then, I think, she died shortly afterwards. But I want to also play for you um, a little bit of an interview that I did with Sandra Huller, the star of your film. She's the wife, Hedvig, uh, Hedvig Haas, and she was talking to me about what it took for her to agree to do this, because as a German herself, you know, she was very conscious about not wanting to exploit the situation. Here's what she mm. told me. We talked a lot about the, the exploitation of the topic, if you know what I mean, and the, what it would mean to show the suffering of the victims again and again and again, which would mean that other people would have to embody that again and again and again, and it would re-traumatize again and again. It was very interesting to hear those conversations that you had. And of course, you didn't show the victims of the Holocaust in, in this film. And you also did something which I think you're quite known for doing, uh, sort of hidden cameras. There were just a load of cameras. And you've described yourself as that not really being on the set, that the actors didn't really know where the cameras were in some of the scenes. That's true, and and uh, this we we designed a system which involved multiple cameras and positioned them in the house. You know, blocked the scene, of course, and then worked out where the cameras would be. But I really wanted the actors to feel that what they they were really walking into 1943 every day, and everywhere they looked, north, south, east, west, was their house and garden. There was no evidence of a film crew or anything. So, um, and 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 partly it was to so that we get that we had this. So partly it was to, to be able to sort of stay away from those sort of screen psychologies and get involved in in the interiority of the actor playing uh, these characters. Rather, I wanted to sort of watch them as if we were documenting something that was happening live. Um, so I kind of, the approach was, um, I think, liberating for the actors. Um, and I think also the approach allows the viewer to sort of project themselves onto them as if they were them or rather to kind of tune into what is what is familiar in them and 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 familiar you know to us yeah. so um you know it was a very important decision not to fetishize not to empower which i think sandra's talking about um and like i said earlier not to reenact the the uh, the um barbarity of these uh, of, of what what yeah. we know happened using actors it really is, I have to say, remarkable talking to you about this and, and getting into this film again, sitting here in Ukraine when so much barbarity is happening all around us. Um, Jonathan Glazer, thank you so much, director of Zone of Interest. And thank of course, you, so you can much. watch the film in cinemas. Thank you. And it's available to rent or buy now, too, on streaming. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Next, we turn to the horrors of the war in the Middle East. 
Palestinian health authorities say more than 29,000 Gazans have now been killed, while the United States pivots at the UN proposing a resolution for a temporary ceasefire and warning Israel not to send ground troops into an offensive in Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians have fled. Alouf Ben is the editor-in-chief at Haaretz. His latest essay for foreign affairs is called Israel's Self-Destruction, Netanyahu, the Palestinians, and the Price of Neglect. And he's joining Walter Isaacson to talk about it. Thank you, Christian and Alouf Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you. President Biden has been talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. They both urged him not to go into Rafah so hard. Prime Minister Netanyahu posted on X a pretty defiant statement in reaction to that. It says, we will continue to fight until complete victory with all of our strength on every front everywhere until we restore security and peace. Do you think that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is right to be rebuffing uh, uh, President Macron and President Biden? No, I think he's wrong. I think that uh, President Biden is actually offering Israel uh, a, great, a great promise, a very promising peace plan that, you know, according to the reports that we've read at the Washington Post and, and other sources, uh, he's working with uh, several Arab leaders on a very comprehensive plan for the day after the Gaza war with, uh, uh, you know, working towards the establishment of a Palestinian state, towards implementing the two-state solution, uh, normal wider normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and perhaps other, other Arab states, and uh, of course, uh, uh, finding a mechanism for better security for Israel and its neighbors along the borders, both in Gaza and in the north, where there is a, low, a lower intensity uh, conflict with Hezbollah. Uh, well, all that sounds good, but ever since the Oslo Accords, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and even before the Oslo Accords, has been against uh, a Palestinian state. In response to this plan, he wrote, Israel outright rejects international dictates regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. How can we get from here to there if he's not even going to be open to the question of a Palestinian state? Well, that's a very good, that's the toughest question of all. Clearly, Netanyahu uh, spent his entire career trying to derail the Palestinian national movement. And uh, especially since returning to power in 2009, when he began by saying uh, that he would somehow conditionally agree to a Palestinian state, he changed his mind. And uh, his last his last uh, coalition, is, uh, the current one, very right-wing, the most right-wing coalition in Israel's history, even declared that nobody besides the Jewish people has any rights in the entire, in the entire space between uh, the river and the sea. Uh, clearly, the Palestinians stemming again have shown that they're not willing to forego their aspirations, their dreams, their fights against Israel in the case of Hamas. And uh, time and again, this idea that we could simply ignore the problem came back to haunt Israel. But for 15 years, Netanyahu has told the story that Israel could prosper without peace, could reach out to the wider Arab world without peace. And to some extent, aided by the Arab Spring that you know dismantled and, and disrupted the, the, Arab, the Arab world, Israel was able to enjoy that quiet 
security, prosperity, uh, while most of the time ignoring the Palestinians. But after October 7, clearly, this is no longer the case. Now, Netanyahu sticks to a coalition that is very right-wing and suffering from a very low popularity due to the failures of October 7 and what got Israel into this war. Uh, so he's trying to rebuild his campaign by saying that he would be the only one who could oppose the international dictation towards the Palestinian state. And clearly, President Biden, too, has his own political worries uh, before a presidential election uh, regarding, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the progressives in his own party that are less pro-Israel than uh, their parents and, and grandparents or the Biden generation if, in the Democratic Party, if you want. Uh, so this, this fight serves them both politically, but it doesn't get us out of the war and it doesn't get us towards a better coexistence or peaceful solution in the future. And that's a problem. The more immediate problem is the hostages and the continuation of this war. CIA Director William Burns in the United States has been part of a process with a lot of nations. They were meeting in Cairo to try to have what I think the president called a sustained period of calm uh, for at least six weeks and to have a hostage exchange. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not even sending negotiators to be part of that process in Cairo. Will he face domestic pressure uh, for not being able to release the hostages? Netanyahu has been able, uh, you know, regretfully, he's been able to, to, to paint this, uh, the, the call to release the hostages or to free the hostages, bring them back home in return for uh, the release of uh, some Palestinian prisoners uh, into a political fight. So he, he colored it as if the opposition that is against him and against his political base is supporting uh, the hostage deal while he's standing up to Hamas and to the rest of the world. While these, are, these poor hostages are dying there and uh, those who are alive are suffering the worst atrocities you can think of. Uh, but clearly there is not enough pressure on Netanyahu to, to conclude this deal. He's still suffering from uh, criticism in his base to, towards the deal he signed with Hamas in 2011 to release one Israeli prisoner of war, Gilad Shalit, in return for over a thousand Palestinians, including Yechir Senwar, the leader of Hamas, the organizer of the October 7 massacre. And so now Netanyahu is trying to compensate that. Let me push back on you in that. Shouldn't he be criticized for that deal? Well, you know, it's it's easy to say that, you know, looking back, it was a mistake to release Sinwar. It was not even so important to the Israelis at the time. The Israelis at the time uh, resisted the, resi the release of other, of other terrorists, not Sinwar. It was seen as a, as a smaller time terrorist because he killed only Palestinians and not Jews. But uh, look... The, the circumstances were different. Uh, there was a lot of uh, pressure to release Shalit. And, and frankly, if the country was better prepared for war, the border was better protected. And Netanyahu, rather than tear the country apart with, uh, with uh, what he called legal reform, which was a kind of autocratic coup through dismantling the independence of the Supreme Court and uh, other, other civil liberties and, and democratic freedoms in Israel, we would have been in a better shape. This was not a given that if you release someone from prison, they come back to fight you. You just published a piece in Foreign Affairs called Israel's Self-Destruction, in which you say that Prime Minister Netanyahu's policies 
paved the way for what happened on October 7th. Explain. Well, I think the, ma- the major thing was the, the ignorance of uh, Palestinians and the argument that Israel could live and prosper while not looking at the Palestinians, uh, treating them uh, you know, as bad as possible without paying any price or with you know, occasional outbursts of, of terrorist attacks or occasional rocket fire from Gaza that Israel could live with and developed defensive systems to, to protect against. Uh, this obviously was not the case, as we see. But even more so in the past year, since returning to power uh, a year ago, Netanyahu did everything to split the Israeli society through his judicial coup, ignoring uh, time and again warnings from his own defense minister, from the heads of intelligence, of security service, uh, from senior military personnel, uh, acting and, and, and reservists telling him that this internal split is a temptation for Israel's enemies to hit, and that the, the risk of war is almost imminent. True, they were not focused on Hamas. They were focused on stronger enemies like Iran, like Hezbollah, like other Iranian proxies in the region. But still, the Netanyahu ignored it. He did not see any risk. He also only saw political risk in these warnings. He never once said, okay, let's check the security along the borders. Are we safe? He's tried, he tried to fire the defense minister after he issued his warning, and he ignored the military intelligence chiefs, whom he saw as supporting his opponents, many of whom were former generals and, and pilots and so on, and, and people who were very proud of their military service. And Netanyahu, throughout his career, always had very tense relationship with the Israel's military establishment. Uh, his main political rivals throughout the years, Tzhak Rabin, Arik Sharon, Benny Gantz, Ehud Barak, were all former senior military officers. And you know, he sees them as timid. He doesn't like their politics of you know being strong militarily, but flexible diplomatically. Uh, he doesn't like their ideas of, of conflict resolution. And clearly, it came to a head, and 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 the price. You know, we all we all we all paid the price. But Netanyahu, since October seven, has never once taken any resp- any iota of responsibility for what happened, both before the war and during the war, or or in in planning and looking ahead towards the day after the war. Uh, many people, including President Biden, have said that the response after October 7th has now become over the top. And you see pushback around the world, uh, anti-Israeli sentiment because of the uh, because of the um, killings that have happened uh, in Gaza because of the Israeli response. Do you think it's been over the top? And uh, what would have the alternatives have been? Look, I think the war was uh, and still is uh, very, very popular among uh, among Israeli Jews. Very popular and and still enjoys wide support. The main division is, as I said, is is what comes first, releasing the hostages or uh, destroying Hamas or winning the war. Now Netanyahu is talking about total victory without actually explaining what it means. Look, Israel had to fight against Hamas because it would be very difficult to convince people to live not just along the border, as they did before October 7, and still have yet to come back both 
around Gaza and, and around the Lebanese border, but also in other parts of Israel. And, and clearly Hamas has been able to build a very uh, a sophisticated, but by very simple means, but a very sophisticated plan and, and deploy it without the IDF noticing. So people are scared and they want to see victory against Hamas. Now, for most of the Israeli public, they don't see what's happening in Gaza. Uh, we at Haaretz are the only ones who even report in Hebrew to Israeli audiences the the level of damage and destruction in Gaza and, and, and killing. Uh, we interview people who live there. It has zero resonance uh, within the Israeli Jewish public. Which is uh, which is a problem because then then the military feels that they have a free hand to do whatever they want and look away and look away and turn and look away at, at looting and and uh, you know useless destruction and so on. At the same time, it's very difficult to fight uh, a paramilitary group that is residing in tunnels, underground tunnels and bunkers, and that you know lives within the within the civil society in Gaza. So it's very difficult to say what would be the exact point after which it's over the top. Clearly, the operation in Rafa that involves uh, getting into occupying an area that where most of the population of Gaza has fled to is very complicated. And I don't see it coming. It's imminent to happen tomorrow. There is military reasoning to argue that if you if you don't close, if you don't seal the Egyptian border and find a way to prevent further uh, further contraband getting into Gaza, and if you don't deal with the remaining Hamas force, uh, you're at fault. But then again, you have to protect the civilians there, and you have to think of a way for them to get back to where they live, the, to where they lived before the war, rebuild Gaza. And, and rebuild Gaza in a way that is not just aimed at building a force to fight Israel, which they did, which they did, unfortunately, very effectively in, in those years of siege. Many within the Israeli leadership argue that this big response to October 7th was absolutely necessary. And you say that uh, many Jews in Israel generally agree with that. Does that mean that this approach is not likely to change? Well, look. If we look, if we judge by the past, whenever Israel was uh, taken by surprise, either by the by Egypt and Syria in '73 Yom Kippur War, or by the first and second Palestinian Intifadas, usually there is a major shift towards towards the right and towards just you know use more force and and, and deploy more soldiers and, and just crush them. But then after a while, people realize that uh, this is not a long term solution. For, for coexistence, prosperity, and security. And therefore, they try to seek uh, a diplomatic peaceful solution, which again, that's, it's never an end in itself. And uh, what we know now after 50 years of peace processing is that, you know, it's a living organism that you need to feed and you need, and you need to worry about. It's not just signing something and then throwing, throwing away the key. So do you think that there's a possibility of a peace process towards a two-state solution once this is over? I'm, look, I'm, uh, I belong to a minority of optimists in, in this part of the world where usually pessimism is, there is the surest way to be right most of the time. Yes, I believe there is. The big question is who could play the role of what? 
the leader of Egypt who went to war in 73, and then four years later came to Jerusalem and eventually signed the peace treaty that is still holding, despite his assassination a couple of years after. But what President Biden is trying to do is to fill in for the lack of that kind of Palestinian leader with, with uh, MBS, with the leader of Saudi Arabia, and make him sort of the custodian of that peace process in return for whatever security guarantees and, and, other, and other goodies that Saudi Arabia wants from the United States. It's a very long shot, but it can be the beginning of something. And we must remember, it took several years from the Kissinger shuttle diplomacy to the peace, to the peace treaty that eventually was signed when Carter was president. It took a while from Baker's Madrid conference to the Oslo Accord signed uh, at the front yard of Bill Clinton, etc., etc. So it's not something that is going to happen tomorrow. But I hope that the Israeli public opinion will also realize that the Netanyahu approach and the right-wing approach is a wrong approach because it only brings more tragedy and more problems afterwards, even if immediately it's seen as the only way to deal with the problem. Olaf Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. And optimism is so important because where there is hope in the darkness, there is life. And finally tonight, a moment in the spotlight for Franklin, the first black character in the beloved Peanuts comic strip. This weekend, Snoopy presents Welcome Home, Franklin, premiered on Apple TV+. Plus. For the first time, it tells how Franklin met Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and the rest of the gang. Franklin joined the Peanuts comic in 1968 amid racial tension and political assassinations in the United States. The creator, Charles Schulz, hoped the new character would bridge divides between black and white children. Now the new special is here in time for Black History Month, trying again to bridge new divisions today. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all across social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from Kiev. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.